Well, uh, hey, Mike. Hey. Mr. How you doing, Colin? How's it going? Mr. Happy. That's your new nickname. Yes, I have. I do. I have earned that one. Yeah. Um. How's how's life? You were at SIGGRAPH. I was at SIGGRAPH. I'm back now. You're back it's now? It's over. Are you changed? No, not really. You're totally gonna... Everything's all new. It's all... What's the deal? What was SIGGRAPH all about? I feel like um, news out of SIGGRAPH was relatively quiet this year. That's just because you were looking at the news we care about. True. <laughs> Tell <laughs> me was... about the news we don't care about. Uh, I don't remember. Um, no, there was not a lot in the cool video slash imaging stuff this year. It definitely was a 3D show this year. Okay. Uh, the everything, everything coming out was new ways to do. I mean, you know, everyone's making the switch to ray tracing. And with that comes all the new talk about how they're doing that in their movies and all the new research papers on how to do it faster and all the people demoing ray tracing in real time on GPUs and so what's the um, so for those aren't familiar ray tracing is it what it's a way of casting light within a 3D scene you're rendering wherein you actually emit light you emit photons from your virtual light sources and then bounce them off the objects that they bounce off of. And some of them hit the virtual camera. A lot of them don't. And that's how you make a scene light. Yeah. Ostensibly. Um, no one really does that anymore, but, um, yeah, the idea is so most of the things you've seen like a Pixar movie until monsters, you, um, they were just kind of faking everything as far as how they render a 3D scene. So all the lighting in the scene is done by the thing being hit by the light. So you draw a line out of the camera, it hits a texture like, you know, the toy's face, whatever. Um, And that runs a shader in your renderer, which computes what color it should be right there. And the only way it does it is it basically says what lights are there in the scene, what angle are they to me, and then from there it computes a color. So all of the light in the scene comes from a light, which is not how reality works. Most of the light we that lights a scene is from diffuse bouncing from other things in the scene that were hit by light. So like if you're in, if you're in a house and you have the lights off in the middle of the day, you can see everything, but there's actually no, that would be completely dark except for the little like window pane on the floor, everything else in a scene in a traditional like fong shaded scene would just be, black and so what they're trying to do now is you know we're basically going back in time to when we figured out the first way to render 30 years ago and ray tracing was really cool with Pavre. yeah yeah remember Pavre, man i remember running it on the dos prompt and yeah yeah yes i mean this is there's nothing new about ray tracing it's just but it I was mean- 
it used to be hideously hideously slow yeah and so no one does it um and it's still hideously slow but it's faster and computers are faster and there's a shit one one or two metric shit tons of money to be made in a good movie nowadays one, so, it, it seems like I, I guess a lot of the papers you were seeing are, are on ways to cheat, and because I think isn't isn't part of the issue with ray tracing that if you do it in its sort of purest form, you end up doing a lot of computation that doesn't influence the actual scene. Right. Yeah. So the way, so like when you introduced it, you said the lights cast rays, and the rays bounce off of an indeterminate number of things before hitting the lens of the camera. And so that was kind of how things used to be done. The problem with that is you don't know if the ray is going to hit the camera until it hits the camera. Otherwise, you're not done. And so what a lot of these systems have started doing is something called um, Russian roulette, where basically if the thing doesn't hit within, you know, you set the low threshold. So like within three bounces, it doesn't hit the camera lens. Then you start playing Russian roulette with it. So every time it bounces, then you give it like a chance of one in 10 or one in 200 of just dying. And so, you know, basically everything's gotten a lot more stochastic. Um, We've gotten kind of the, you know, the, the whole system has gotten very comfortable with this idea that you get close enough and you converge on an idea over time and then you just sort of build into the tool an idea of how much you need to converge before you give up. Um, and so you can see this in like tools like Blender um, or Modo or any of the rendering tools. A lot of them have um, ray trace based views now where you can, you know, where you can actually move the your scene around in real time or your camera and and it will update in a ray trace. And what basically happens is you move the thing and everything goes to hell. And then you get, you know, 16 by 16 pixel, you know, resolution and then 32 by 32 and then 64 by 64. And basically they just slowly throw more rays until, you know, most of these just keep throwing rays until, you know, you quit the app. But then when you're actually doing your final render, you determine how, you know, when you want to give up on each frame. Mm-hmm. So from a visual, just from a sort of visual sense of the output, I, I don't feel like Monsters U, for example, looks dramatically better than, um, you know, Up or one of the previous Pixar films. It, it, is that a fair assessment? And if so, sort of what are the big distinctions and... Okay, so this this amazed me. We saw they Pixar was there, and they showed some stuff about their because they have this new, you know, global illumination pipeline, which is you know basically it's one of the things you get with ray tracing. Is you know global illumination is this idea that you get light from objects which were lit, so everything casts everything throws light at some in some quantity based on you know this idea that light bounces around your scene and what was amazing was you know you so you look at these scenes that they lit and they're still a little crazy so every single character has its own um light in ring attached to the character okay not to the scene so every character like as part of their skeleton has a key a fill a backlight then 
it has a you know a another set for the eyes so that they get the right little specular highlight which they totally fake which was pretty cool to see um and then as the character moves around these lights move with them you just don't see them in the scene but they're always there and they're always sort of illuminating the character but in order to get a scene that looked natural without any of this global illumination so basically in, in the way that you did it this was you just added lights to fill in what would have come from bounce so you put a light that kind of like lights the wall and you turn it on just a little bit and then you do another one for the floor and they were like they opened up one of their scenes or they were like showing stills of one of their scenes with the light all the lighting wireframes turned on and there's little there's nothing left <laughs> it's like there's you know like 2000 lights okay in a scene and it's, you know, it's just literally one giant ball of, like, lights and no characters and no scene and nothing else left. And so with global, global illumination or ray tracing, for example, it's more like what we do on a, a movie set. So it's not necessarily that you only sort of build in the practicals. Um, right. The sun. Well, what was sort of amazing was they, 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 for a lot of the scenes, they have these ones that, like, move around with the characters. Mm-hmm. But then they, like... They throw in the sky dome, and they're most of the way to done. Like they just go in and out a couple of punch lights after that. Sure. So a lot like a you know movie set where you yeah. know, if if we could strap lights onto cat talent, a lot of times we would because a lot of times what you do on a set is you spend a lot of time figuring out like oh, when he moves from here to here he drops out or yeah yeah um, well that's that's pretty cool and so from so that makes it sound like in terms of the benefits a lot of the benefits are on the sort of cost and complexity of production side and less so on yeah the they said they doubled their render times and it was totally worth it because of how much time they save lighting the whole thing well and again they'll probably you know have their render times over the next year between faster computers and better pipeline right yeah, so they're exactly. back to neutral but they save a bunch of actual people time right and people's time is more expensive well because yeah they can always i mean scaling a render farm it's much episode. easier yeah. than scaling lighting staff. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. So this is Pixar, but it sounds like this is happening industry-wide. Yeah. I mean, pretty much everyone was talking about their global illumination pipelines, all of the studios. Um, it seems like there's very few things still being done the old way. Interesting. So, so yeah, I mean, that was the big thing this year. Everyone was talking about that. Everyone was talking about simulation. Uh, what does simulation mean in that context? Just physics simulation. So okay. clothing, you know, like everything cloth is done by computer now. Everything grass is done by computer. Everything fur and hair is done by computer. I think I... Uh, I, I and think all the research, all the cool research papers were in that kind of stuff. Like, Did you catch the stat that um, with the new Superman film, his his cape is CG and in almost every scene, they just didn't bother putting a real cape on so that they could have full control over its, um, movement. I had not heard that, but I totally believe it. Even in, you know, scenes that are just dialogue, if they want to be able to add a ripple or something, they wanted to have that control. So nice. Um, were there other, any other things in terms of research that you sort of said, you know, I can see where this will be in five years or this is amazing. This will be an amazing Photoshop plugin or anything like that. See, there was lots of stuff. There wasn't any Photoshop plugins this year. Um, 
I mean, Adobe was there. They had something, which I'm still a little confused by the novelty of it. But it was um, color correcting a scene automatically based on a um, target video. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, you know, you basically you go on iTunes and you pull the trailer to a movie you like and you load it in the premiere and it will make your movie look like that. Um, <laughs> does it make your talent look like the... No, it doesn't seem to do that part. That's but, you know, it does the color stuff. And what was interesting is you could actually load... It started to kind of fall apart in a lot of these demos, but you could load a, um, a one movie and then show it another movie, and it'll, like, muck all the colors up. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It I'm didn't really work very well with, like, new movies that were all DI'd really heavily. I suppose, yeah. I mean, not as the source footage, because there's just no, there's nothing left by the time they're done with that. So I can't remember if this was actually at SIGGRAPH or just came out at a similar time. There was that demo of um, some software for merging shots together. Oh, the slicey thing? Yeah, so that you could, like, you know, fly a camera through a window, stop the camera, restart it outside the window in a slightly different position with different colors and whatever, and it would, the software would make it all work. I didn't see that one. That would have been, yeah, that was pretty cool, though. Like, basically trying to do graph cuts and remove stuff. Yeah, that was a neat little, that came out a long time ago. That video. Yeah, I'd seen similar things, but this seemed more polished. Yeah, it was definitely like they went back and made a better video. Um, (laughs) But yeah, um, I did not see them. I don't think they were there. Okay. There were some cool things, though. Um, 3D hair. That's getting really big. 3D hair. Now, you talked about something where people were doing, what, like combing hair after the fact. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, take the thing. You can like take a photo of a person, and it will try to figure out what their hair, what the three D model of their hair would have been, in order to get that photo. Okay. And then you can like go in and start like snipping their hair. You can give them a haircut. <laughs> wow. I mean, I think I think they did went through the trouble of doing all the like matting and you know coming up with a clean plate by hand. Oh, but okay. But after, but after they had done that, it was pretty nice. You could, like, grow their hair out longer, and it would sort of fall wherever you wanted it to. Wow. That'll be nice for continuity. Yeah. I don't... None of them are emotional, are motion coherent yet. Okay. But, but again, I mean... Someday. That's just a matter of doing it 24 times a second. Well... And mon- modeling every strand of hair interacting with the other head. Yeah, I mean, it's more about doing it once yeah. and somehow getting 24 frames out of it. Yeah. Because that's the problem, right? Now you can do it 24 times a second, but each time you have a different hairdo, slightly. Hmm. Excuse me. I yawned. Not because yes. I'm bored, but because it's a little warm in here. No. And I'm bored. Um, any other stuff that, that really blew you away at SIGGRAPH? I mean, it's, was it worth going this year? Will you go next year? What's your take? Yeah, I mean, it's always good. It's, you know, it's definitely the best conference out there that I've seen for, you know, imagery nerds. Well, I'm curious because you seem to think that the video industry was not represented all that heavily in terms of attendees. And I'd seen some tweets from other people who were there saying that this is like, from colorists saying this is way more my community than 
NAB, and, and you don't seem to. Agree you did with see that. that, yeah. Who? Huh? I, I didn't was, see. That. I don't remember who it was, but huh. one of the colorists we follow. Strange. I didn't. Yeah, I don't. I did not get that impression. I mean, part of that was, you know, I don't do the. There's a lot of tracks, um, and there were some, you know, there was some stuff about like. No, there wasn't even much stuff this year about on the production side. I mean, there's a lot of production presentations where movies will talk about how they did stuff. Yeah. Or, you know, post houses will talk about how they did stuff. But even that, I don't remember a lot on the DI side this year. There was more last year. Hmm. Okay. I don't know. And, and I guess you'll have to go in for another year to see whether that's a trend or whether this is a blip. I mean, there is that sense that as things become solved issues there's less interesting stuff to talk about at a conference like say graph as workflows become robust instead of hacked together and yeah definitely um yeah i don't i mean yeah i don't know so um one of the things i was more interested in, in as an outsider in terms of press releases i saw um the render rocket platform um or Render Rockets, the company, Launchpad, and Throttle are the platforms, I guess. Yeah, uh, tell me about these. I didn't see this. This is choice. something that I think we, I don't remember if we talked about it on the podcast or talked about it just in private um, back, you know, maybe a year ago when you were working in Blender a lot. Uh, and so this is basically a piece of software you run on your computer that will leverage a cloud render platform automatically. So it's integrated into things like uh, Maya and Max and Cinema 4D. And you can actually, you know, hit render, use their app, and they are running a cluster, I assume, on Amazon um, that handles the rendering for you in the cloud. Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, there are lots of these out there. This one looked interesting just in terms of the amount of polish and then the the pricing model, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of a dollar an hour. Um, and so, I don't know. I, I, I liked that it looked pretty seamless, and I think it's interesting um, to sort of connect end users with cloud computing in this way. Yeah, and I mean, it totally, for the, you know, this is one of those few places in our industry where cloud makes, like, total sense because you upload a very small amount of data and you churn on it for a very long time. And then eventually you download a, you know, relatively small amount of data. Right. Um, yeah, you're definitely not IO bound on, you know, high quality renders. Yeah. Even over, you know, an internet connection. Um, so yeah, I, I'll be curious to see if this. I mean, they've been around already. This they were just showing off their new sort of more polished platform, but it's interesting, and and it would be interesting to see if one of the render, you know, the big vendors gets into this space directly. I kind of assume that would be coming. You got to assume Autodesk is doing this soon, right? Yeah. I mean, they're so, you know, they're spending all their time like floundering for something to supplement their. AutoCAD money way. Yeah. Did you, was there any talk at SIGGRAPH about um, H.265? H-E-V-C? I didn't hear a single thing about it, no. Okay. We're just starting to see 
it emerge into, you know, sort of normal people's hands in various ways and people are starting to work with it a little bit more. The tool, you know, obviously the tool sets are starting to get to the point that you can start to play with it a little. So we'll throw a link in our show notes to um, an article from Extreme Tech that did an initial round of benchmarking. And it's a fairly thorough piece, uh, benchmarking, benchmarking HEVC uh, against the claims and the goals that were set out when the when the um, codec was announced and basically finding that it it really does meet its goal, which is H.264 quality at half the bit rate. It's pretty amazing. It's, yeah, quite remarkable. Um, and What were they using for their benchmarks? Um, I assume they were using the open source, or no, um, multi-coreware. I don't know of any, there aren't any great encoder, decoder. It's a commercial open source venture around X265. Oh, wait, so there's a new, there's an X265 group now? Yeah. Oh. I, why, you, I thought you had told me that the H264 guys weren't interested. The original guy wasn't, and so um, some other people are working on it now. Oh, cool. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, CPU performance is still horrible. Like, it's still not at a point that you could realistically use it. Um, but if you aren't paying attention to CPU and compute times, the actual quality of the codec. Yes. Um, and we saw with H.264, you know, speed ups. That happened out. for a long time, yeah. too, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's really exciting. It'll, I, I, you know, here's hoping that Apple or Google and Android, someone adopts H.265 quickly and because and, it's going to take that for the tool set to really move forward. Um, yeah, I mean... I suppose so. I mean, we have to assume it's become a web format at some point once the browsers can play it back. Well, it, it won't become a web format, I don't think, at this point until mobile devices can play it. Because mm. that's okay. so much so of consumption. Yeah, so basically we're waiting until Qualcomm ships a chipset or something. Well, and that becomes the question. is Most of these um, decode chipsets are pretty flexible, and so it's a matter of whether they can in software implement H- H.265 using the existing hardware decoders supplemented with CPU um, hmm. or whether they're going to have to wait until they ship new chipsets. They're really flexible? Some of them are, at least, hmm. um, because they're, you know... I thought, especially in the mobile, because you wanted to be so power conscious, you just sort of made it... Well, but my, my understanding is that a lot of the chipsets, they're, they're not like full implementations of the codec or anything. They just implement very specific functions from the codec. Sure. Um, and and H.264 and H.265 share a lot of that stuff. So, Right. I mean, if nothing else, you'll be able to do like a base profile of 265, which is essentially 264. Right, right. <sighs> yeah, that'll be interesting. So, um, I don't know. I mean, especially when you think about delivering HD content to Retina devices over mobile, um, having the bit rate is pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, you got to assume YouTube spends a fair amount of money on their, you know, bandwidth costs. Yeah. So um, we'll just have to have to see where this goes, but um, it, it'll be. It was interesting to see some real world testing that found that the original goals of the working group have more or less been met. Um, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. It makes you wonder, like, how many other things are out there 
that we know will work much better. They just aren't included because they aren't, you know, they're not even close to computationally acceptable. Yeah. I mean, like, what's the, like, if if you give, uh, you know, a Mac Pro four days to compress a single image, (laughs) what's the smallest? What's, you know, what's the craziest, like, space savings you can get? Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting thought. I I mean, I don't think anyone tries to solve that problem. Right. I mean, the, the process by which codecs are developed these days is so strange because... You know, you open up the process, everyone throws in the whole kitchen sink of patents they've got because everyone wants their technology included so they get royalties. Right. And well, everyone includes the same amount, same number of patents. Right. Because <laughs> so, they all want to be balanced, you know. Oh, well. It's, it's, you know, it's a strange process and I don't know that it necessarily results in the best possible codec, but um, it's not bad either. It seems to be getting better, though. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's see. We've got a bunch of 3D printing stories in the in the list here. Oh, I want to talk about Leap Motion. Okay. Yeah. You got your Leap. You've had a Leap for a while. Uh, and you got your real Leap. Yeah. I played with a Leap yesterday. You did? Yeah. Okay, what do you think? It's a thing. I don't know. I can see it being very valuable in... Um, specific verticals and I think there's a lot of opportunity there but um, as a device itself for general input it doesn't make any sense to me right okay so what what vertical okay well we should probably explain what it is first Um, leap is a tiny somewhat affordable connect for your hands is that that that's Bart, right? right? I guess, and it's a, it's a touchless input device. Um, you put it in front of your monitor, you hold your hand above it in 3D space, you, you move your hand around, you make gestures, you move in and out, and then it lets you do stuff by watching your hand. And... Right. So it basically figures out where your fingertips are and passes those on to whatever software implements their SDK. And then it's up to the software developer to do something useful with all that. Right. Yeah, okay, so you mentioned that you can see where this is going to be good. Um, I mean, I think... I still can't. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think that um, manipulation of 3D objects like their skull demo does make sense, Um, being able to grab and rotate objects and things in a very natural way. And even, you know, things like Google Earth, I think that does intuitively make a lot of sense. I think that's more intuitive than using a mouse to perform that same action. Yeah, I suppose so. And there are verticals in which that sort of action happens all day long. Um, yeah. So I, I think things like that, I think any sort of public interface where you specifically don't want people touching a screen directly, um, <sighs> you know, there could be options there. Um, I don't I'm going to put one in front of my screen, and all it's going to do is be attached to like a giant klaxon. <laughs> and if you go to touch my screen, it's just going to freak the fuck out. That's all it's going to do. It's going to track that you're within an inch of my screen, and it's just going to its going to make you shit your pants. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm okay with that because, yes, if you touch my screen, we can't be friends. So, yeah, let's do that. That's a good – that's the killer app right there for Leap. Yeah. <laughs> Leap screen protector, $1.99. Um. 
That's my dog. I kind of uh, want to make that now. Yeah, I'm that picture does. I'm gonna whip one of those out. Yeah, uh, we'll just edit that out. Nah, it's fine. If you want to beat me to it, that's fine. Just give me all the money you make. Yeah, or we'll see you. Um, yeah, so I guess that's my my take on it, and that their their software just does, isn't smart enough yet. It doesn't work well enough, and it yeah i mean so yeah you alluded to the fact that i had one and so i've been playing with a dove copy for a little while a friend of mine got one actually from the company and you know i have a couple ideas for apps and none of them the just the device isn't accurate enough at tracking things in order to realize any of the things i want to do um you know it's just got lots of you know, what What you really want is some sort of, like, model. You want one of these, you know, there's lots of tools now that are pretty smart about hand tracking. You know, especially with this these sort of things where you have depth data, which I assume they do. Right. Um, they've been a little shy about how they do it, but I'm, you know, I we know that it's infrared light and that it's a camera of some kind. Um, hopefully two. And so... You know, there. You know, there's. Right now, it has like no notion of what a hand looks like. It seems right. It just basically finds fingertips, and if you do anything weird, like if you point your whole hand and at the device, it loses all your fingers because it basically needs the profile. You know, it needs the turkey hand, like you know, the Thanksgiving trace your hand turkey hand. If it sees anything other than that, it's like, whoa, there's no hands here. Yeah. Um, like, to the point where you can't touch your fingers together. You know, if you just take your hand and put your four fingers together, it loses all of them. Um, and so, you know. Whereas if it used a skeletal model or something. It'd be like, wow, that big blob is something. Where do you think the fingers are? Oh, look, they all fit in that big blob. Yeah. yeah. I mean... Hopefully, I mean, they've said they're moving that way. Hopefully, they'll do it. Um, you know, they definitely seem to have enough money from their pre-sale. Yeah. I'd well, like to revisit some of these app ideas, so I hope they do it because it'd be fun. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, again, you know, one, it's cool that they got the product out there. Yes. It's always a little tenuous. It does sort of... it does what it's supposed to do. I don't think it's broken in any fundamental way, unlike maybe some products. Um, and, you know, hopefully the hardware is robust enough that now they can really take it the rest of the way with software. Yeah. I mean, they do, yeah, it seems like, yeah, it's mostly software. I mean, I don't know, I haven't actually used the shipping version, but does it still take like 60% of your CPU? Yeah, it's definitely far okay. too CPU intensive. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the problems I have with making their software better is that they need to figure out a way to not use all of the processing yeah. on the machine. But we'll see. Yeah, I wish them luck. I I also wish them luck. We will see. Um, we mentioned on our last show that we bought these file transporters. Oh, for fuck's sake! Yeah, let's. You want to bitch about these things? You like yours. I don't like I, I mine right now is a fairly functional network attached storage device. Uh, okay, what are these things? 
they, sell me on these like you already did once. So you take a hard drive, you put it in a box with a CPU and attach it to a network. And what it gives you is a quote unquote private Dropbox, private cloud storage. So it talks to your computer directly. You can treat it like a NAS. You can have files on it that are synced to your computer like Dropbox so that if you are offline, you still have access to them. And you can share folders between different users of other transporters. So I can share a folder with you and it'll sync to your transporter. And you can also have multiple transporters and have folders synced between them as well. Um, right. So it's kind of like a way to back up all your stuff in the cloud, except the cloud is on the same desk. But then you can do an offsite to another one of these somewhere else. Or that can actually be like the two, you know, like in our case, the two or three locations we do business. Um, and that way we all have the same files. We're not going, you know, to the ether to get them. They're like, you know, in the room on locals, you know, on the local network. And they, you know, sync their changes over time across the internet. Right. So how do they work? And they don't. Yeah. So they shipped with a version one software, and it was pretty unusable. Um, version two, we are all in the beta on. And for me, it's been fairly stable and functional. Um, but for Mike, it's just been a, a real headache. I would say the big issues I'm seeing in terms of dealing with looking at their logs and everything, it seems like they have real issues understanding the network conditions they're under. Um, and so they're often, so, so the device has to do a few things. Uh, when you're local to it, it needs to be able to communicate directly with you. When you're away from it, it needs to NAT tunnel through your router to be able to get out to the internet. And so it sort of phones home to a centralized server and then you phone into that server and it does the same way that Skype does or anything nowadays does NAT traversal for you. So you can talk to each other. Um, and which is also the process they use to connect multiple transporters. Yes. There's some sort of intermediate there through their servers that sort of deals with everybody tunneling out to them. Right. And so it seems like a lot of times they get confused about which network condition they're in and they end up falling back to sort of um, very slow modes for transactions and transfers. Um, and they, they seem to end up conflicting with themselves on the network. Um, there just seem to be a lot of sort of edge cases where they just fall over. Um, the issues I've seen when I have seen issues have tended to be when I've been away from the house and I come back and it doesn't understand that it should communicate directly and it tries to like proxy all traffic back through the web server. Oh, weird. And so performance really drops off. Um, they also, and I think, you know, this is the most disappointing thing for me, even though I understand why they did it. And I think you probably agree is that they use uh, fuse as the transaction layer between you and the device. Um, yeah, so I mean, Fuse is a sort of file system plugin architecture for all the various OSs, and it makes, it, you know, it presents a file system to the OS, and then their software on the backside takes rights to that fake file system and shuttles them off to the device. Yeah, the problem is, I mean, I get why they, I get why someone would Google this on the internet, find the Fuse project, get really excited, go through all the documentation, and decide to base a company off of it. I get all that. What you don't get is how they someone 
who's supposed to be a player in this industry doesn't know the like history of every single company that's ever built a product off fuse eventually moving off of it right like it's just not stable <laughs> well and it, it i think the biggest issue is it it's really opaque and so failure just is sort of finder errors negative 36 or whatever right i mean so it's i mean the so the problem is that you have to it's does Designed to look like a file system to the OS, which means you have OS level like muck going on, and then you have fuse level stuff going on. It means you end up having to basically be a lowest common denominator for all of the file systems out there, because the whole point is to be cross-platform. And then you just end up like OSs don't plan on like they you know Apple writes their own OSs. You know, and their own file systems. They have so many built-in assumptions about how this stuff works that you just can't slap a new one into the system and expect it to work well. Right. And I mean, the the obviously it's a small team. They needed to ship out of the gate with Mac and Windows support, and th- this probably made life a lot easier. But gosh, I would be so much happier with something that was totally user space and just sort of did what Dropbox does. Um, yeah, just put all your files in the thing and then watch for them. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's unfortunate. You know, I think that the, again, it's a case where the hardware seems fine. The build quality was nice. Um, I, I think it can be functional hardware and it's being let down by the software. Both the software on your computer and I suspect and the, firmware, the software. Yeah. You know, it just runs Linux, but I suspect the Linux software running on top of it. So, you know, since the teleporter initially or transporter initially launched it the company's been bought by drobo which is a little sketchy oh let's have a talk about that too so there were a bunch of people drobo they left and i don't know we're in the wilderness for a while at synology or something but um then they started transporter got a bunch of kickstarter money made transporter shipped version one and then got bought by Drobo. And the former head of Transporter is now the CEO of Drobo. But he used to be the CEO of Drobo right. too, right? Okay. And but, Okay, so you, I didn't know about this intermediate step here where they worked somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Snow, what was that? Sorry, they were I don't know them. Yeah. Okay. That makes it a little more palatable. Well, but, so... But what this sounds like to me is... I'm getting sick of companies that refuse to spend any of their profits on R&D and want to outsource every fucking expense to me and you know everyone else who will put money on Kickstarter to gamble on whether or not you can ship a product. Right. Yeah, it's not a matter of, you know, we, we're happy to subsidize the cost of R&D as part of buying a product that's been developed and tested and works. And right. Trying to flip or that buying way. the last right. three products you've shipped. Like, maybe some of that should go in R&D instead of going to your VC. Right. And so I think in this case what happened, because the guy, I forget his name, gave an interview this week where he was fairly frank about what had gone down. It sounds like um, they had left in frustration because the VC behind Drobo was pushing them to get into the enterprise. And that has not gone well. And Drobo has had to lay off a bunch of people and really um, refocus the company back on sort of home office and small medium business. And 
I, it sounds like basically they'd left in disgust um, and the board now has freaked out because things were crumbling and has bought these guys back to get them back on board to fix the company. So it's like a next thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's less annoying. I mean, and so the hope now, they, they say they're going to keep the transporter brand. The hope would be that uh, you can leverage the expertise of the unified organization because fundamentally a transporter does a whole lot of things that a drobo does and a drobo does a whole lot of things a transporter does and they would both be better if they both did everything um and so hopefully there's going to be some unification of the platform or i don't know yeah you know drobo's never had great desktop software either but at least their drobo units didn't rely on it yeah i don't know i mean i would i kind of wish they just didn't try to shave the yak with fuse and just either made it an smb server that you just always used nas locally yeah or which i tried to do and it, it doesn't even work as that i mean that, that's one of their options i right. can't even get that to work and that may be something um, that you know drobo actually does sell nas devices so maybe they can leverage some expertise there to make that work well yeah on linux you know is used on a few nas devices it's not like they're you know Starting from scratch here. Right, they're not... Uh, they basically, the they took something and screwed it up. They didn't like... Sorry. What's that? I said boiling the ocean, and then I was apologizing I, for it. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I don't even hear it when you say things like that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. So how do you feel? What I don't know. What's your take on this? I, Where yeah. companies do this Kickstarter thing. Because every now and then, you know, people come to us with these ideas for apps, and I'm like, you know, that would be really fun to make. I just don't think there's any money in it. Which, I mean, ultimately is exactly, you know, if there's an app out there that people really want and that we could make and that we'd enjoy making, but we just don't trust them when they say they know a million people who will buy it because everyone says that when they have a feature idea. Um I mean, the world would all, you know, everyone involved would be better if we did a Kickstarter. But I'm still, I don't know, the taste of it. I don't know. Yeah, what no, I, I totally agree. Um, I think that it perverts Kickstarter in some ways. Um, you know. However, our feature-length 3D movie that I'm going to do in Blender with Global Illumination, after yeah. all these cool tricks I learned from Pixar, that is going to be on Kickstarter. Well, I mean, you know, an even an even bigger example for uh, going on right now is the Ubuntu phone. Have you followed this project at all? Ah, a little bit. So they're looking to raise something like $32 million to build a Ubuntu-powered smartphone. Um, and it looks like a credible phone, and they've got a credible team. But, you know, they obviously need to pre-sell a whole lot of these and then eventually maybe deliver a phone. But it's a case where the, the powers that be behind it... Um, What's his face? The guy, Mark Shuttle, Shuttleworth, you know, he's got plenty of money. If he actually believed this was a viable product, he could certainly fund the development. Um, but I, I guess yeah. the point is if, if one, it's a way for him to test whether there really is a market. And two, if you can get people to give you $32 million, why spend the $32 million you don't have to spend? Like, right. If people are willing to spend Especially, it. Especially, yeah. 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 Going to spend it and there are no like horrible terms on the money like there would be just going to a bank yeah yeah i mean uh, yeah i mean 
I don't really begrudge anyone doing it, and I see where there's a, like, you know, this is one of those disruptions that's good. It's a mixed bag. Um, I mean, it, it definitely gets us some products that probably wouldn't be created otherwise. But I think it also creates a lot of products that would be a lot better if they were developed in a traditional model. Yeah. I don't know. Like, what's a, what's a good example of that? Well, I, you know, all these products where the software has fallen down, where they're they're rushing to ship stuff because they've promised an unreasonable ship date, um, and they end up having to cut corners, and they end up shipping a product that's not as good as it would be if they hadn't publicly committed to all of these very vocal people. I mean, obviously you have pressure if you take VC, but um, it's a different kind yeah. of pressure, I think, versus people slamming you on Twitter all day. Or Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I guess I can see that. The other thing... What was I going to say? I mean, it also means you can potentially do products with a smaller target market. For example, um, you know, the transporter guy said that they'd sold about 5,000 of these so far. And if you were a company doing that solely as a throw it out there and see if it sticks, that would be pretty bad news. Yeah. But if they've already paid all of their development costs in theory and, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's, Again, pros and cons. Um, I think it's a cool way to explore technology, but I don't think it creates. I'm, you know, for example, I like my Pebble a lot. My Pebble works. The software has gotten better. It sort of does more of the things it was originally supposed to do now. Um, but it's just begging for someone to put the, the real to, time into to it. it. Right. Yeah. Um, Luckily. Yeah. I think you'll be okay. Yeah. Um, but you know, again, I'm, I'm, the world is overall better, I think for Kickstarter, but, uh, a mixed bag and these file transporters are very much a mixed bag. I would not recommend rushing out and buying one, uh, if they would like to, you know, we will, we will tell you on air the, the very moment you you should buy one. Yeah. (laughs) But until then, assume you should not. Yeah. Yeah. And I, unless you want to buy three of them. Yeah, we'll cut you a nice deal. <laughs> no, we won't. Okay. We will sell them to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will say that, you know, the fact that I have a two terabyte hunk of storage that I can get to when I'm not at my house is cool. And I didn't have to do anything with like port tunneling or anything. Like, yeah, no, it's cool, but I can also do that with my Mac Pro already. Sure, sure. Like, I could take that same drive I stick it in my Mac Pro. I can always back to my Mac. Yeah. And it would actually work, yeah. you know? Well, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Someday. I mean, the only thing that's really compelling to me is the fact that when you stick something on it, it can go somewhere else as a backup. Right. Like, everything else is, like, old news. Um, And that part actually seems to work. I mean, everything you've put on yours, I get. The problem is I just can't load. Like, I'm going to have to literally send you a drive with all of my files on it for you to load onto your 
right. her teleporter to sync to my teleporter over the internet, which totally would be fine. Yeah, like that would work just fine. Um, and I don't understand why that is. But, you know, we'll let you know if they fix it. Yep, indeed. Um, any other things we want to talk about this week? We're getting on towards. Yeah, I'm going to get kicked out of this room soon. Um, you know, I just had to chatter here. Sure, what you got? I'm going to do a YouTube video I saw on YouTube, which is um, sort of graphical and auditory um, demonstrations of sorting algorithms. Okay. So little, you know, there's been research over the years in the fastest way to sort a list of numbers into numerical order. Um, and this sort of just takes all of the various options that have, you know, existed in the world. And it like, it's, it's easiest to just watch it, but basically it sorts them and it makes, it shows the sorting happening on screen in a sort of a bunch of bars of random size to represent the number in the, that spot. Mm -hmm. And so they move around as they get sorted until eventually you have like a stair step. Um, and then it also assigns each one a note, a musical note in a ascending scale. Um, and so you can both see and sort of hear really intuitively how the sort algorithm works. It's, it's like teaching at its best. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, worth taking a look if you're at all into this kind of nerdy stuff. What do you got? Um, I will talk about this uh, cute little thing out of Germany called Trim Twin Twinkind, um, and it's oh, a yeah. thing they're setting up as sort of a pop-up where you go in, they will 3D scan you, your whole body, and do images. They'll clean up the image a bit, and then they'll 3D print a model of you and give it to you. For money, then you can just have it on your shelf. Sell it to you, yes. Yeah, well, so yeah. I don't know. It's cute. It's um, it's very cool. I yeah, there were a bunch of people like that at SIGGRAPH. Um, that was big this year too. Hmm. Doing like a connect body scan and then making something out of it. Sure. I would get this done if it was in the cities. I would. I would go get this. That'd be fun. They're pretty expensive, aren't they? Uh, I didn't. I couldn't find pricing, but maybe. I um, thought they were like a couple hundred dollars. Okay, that's possible. Which sort of was a turnoff for me, but yeah. you know, they'll get cheaper. Yeah, I mean, it'd be worth I mean, it. It's obviously going to be the sort of thing that, like, within another ten years, is going to, you know, how you go to Las Vegas, and they're the little kiosks. I'm sure they're in malls too, but I haven't been in a mall in years. Um, <laughs> Where they'll like scan your face of you and your girlfriend and like laser etch them into the inside of a piece of glass in 3D. Where you end up with little bubbles. They do like a th three dimensional laser matrix. I, you seen these? No. <laughs> they like craze the glass. They take a glass, it's actually like an acrylic cube, but then they craze it inside the thing by using two beams that converge at a specific point. And so they make like a point cloud inside the plastic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have seen that. Okay. Scan of the yeah. person. Yeah. This is going to be the new that. That's all I was trying to say. Cool. Well, I'm on board. Yeah. 
All right. Well, we will uh, see you all soon. Yes. Bye. Bye.